ready and warm. All right, cool. Does anybody see the counter starting up? I still see zero. Yeah, it's going. Uh, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, All right, so we'll go ahead and talk uh, our start. Uh, Martin, you had had a question about um, pity and yeah. uh, the and the thoughts of wanting it. Exactly. And. And that anything that we want that we don't have is is a kind of suffering and it can get worse. And what I mean by that is, is that whenever we want something. Well, let's start at the beginning liking. Obviously, people would like pity because that's in fact the state of liking really liking uh, liking the results of uh the work that we put in in the form of uh being not just satisfied but feeling really successful and so we feel really good for that because we are successful and we and we've got it and it's pleasing it's pleasant we like it but the human mind goes a little further than that generally and that is is that if we like it then we want to bring it close to us. We want to keep it. Uh, we want to own it. And then when we don't have it, we long for it and want it to return. Now that can be anything. It can be you got the car repaired and you feel successful at that. And then as you're leaving the mechanic shop, you find out it ain't fixed. And so now you feel bad, you want the car to be fixed. Okay, and so we feel bad because we we thought something was going to happen and it didn't. So now we're not in a state of liking, we turn into a state of not liking. But either the liking or the not liking generally is is ignorant. In other words, we we like something or we don't like something but we're not really aware of that liking and not liking sometimes because it's so fast that it just pops up in the sense of liking or not liking. And when it's ignorant, if I like it, then I want it. And if I want it, then I've got to have it. And so I'll start doing things. But also there are several things that go along with that. One of them is, is that I, I like it and I want it, that means is that I would be better off if I had it. Well, if I would be better off if I had it, that's also uh, the logically the same position is, is that right now I'm not good enough because I don't have what I like, what I want. Well, that's then a state of dukkha for sure, wanting something that you don't have and feeling incomplete and not good enough, almost as if you can't be filled. The Buddha has uh, the, the four woeful states, and one of them is the state of what is called a preta, or a hungry ghost. Someone who wants something. Basically, the drawing of it is like a balloon. 
or a pot that's got a very, very small mouth so that uh, the pot could con could contain huge amounts, let us say, of water. Maybe it's 100 gallons or so. But if the hole to put the water in is very tiny, then it takes a whole lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of pressure in order to get the water into this container to get it full. And so that's why it's, uh, it looks like a balloon with a very, very small opening. In fact, balloons can get emptied very fast. All of that pressurized air can go right out of that balloon's uh, hole, let us say within a couple of three seconds. However, with the using the lungs and the mouth, blowing the balloon up takes time. There's resistance. The hole is small. Okay, so that's a good analogy of the woeful state of the preta is, is that the capacity is great, but the amount that can go in at any particular time is small. So this is the idea that, in fact, um, when we want to feel good, when we want pleasure, when we want pity, that our wanting is so large and the hole that the pity can come in through is very tiny. So the easiest way to do it is if you don't want the pity, then like the balloon, it goes back to zero or very small, an un uninflated balloon. And now it's easy enough to start putting air in it. So from that analogy, what we can see is, is that if I would stop wanting the pity and be satisfied without it, then we can become successful at being satisfied without it. And now we feel successful and here comes the, the pleasure, here comes the joy, here comes the oh wow sensation. So it comes with success, and yet wanting the pity is a, is a sense of failure. This is why we have to go back then to the original part of the Eightfold Noble Path, and that is to wake up, because we often go around ignorantly wanting this and wanting that, and we also go around ignorantly not liking this and not liking that, and because it's ignorance, we think that we've got to push away. Just because I don't like it, I have to push it away. And just because I like it, I've got to bring it to me. Okay, that I've got to is kind of a rule that we have built up. That, in fact, um, defines the, the situation that we're ignorant. In other words, we have, instead of being wise and seeing what's going on, we're letting a rule do the work for us. I should feel pity rather than, wow, here it comes. All right, so uh, if we can take that away, take those rules out, about, oh, it is better, or I should, or any of that kind of stuff, and come back to the point of, I'm okay without it. This is good enough. Learning to feel satisfied with the way things are is becoming successful itself.
And so in this case about the pity, the way to handle it is, is that it will come on its own soon enough. Right now, I'm okay. Right now, this is good enough. Right now, I can be satisfied. So this is how we do. Back to that April Noble Path is to wake up, take a look, and recognize that wanting something is painful. And so let's change that wanting into being satisfied without it. Recognize that, yes, it's very pleasant, I like it, but I don't want it. Ah, this reminds me of uh, an incident that happened, is actually quite famous now, that happened between Achan Sumedho before he was an Achan and his teacher Achan Cha. And they were at a ceremony once a year, it's called the Katin ceremony, where all of the girls, because of the Thai culture, are all dolled up. This is the best time. They've got on their best clothing, uh, best Watt clothing anyway, and makeup and everything like that, and they're most beautiful. And so Achan Cha is seeing uh, Achan Sumedho sitting there, and he, he nudges him and says, well, what do you think? Well, Anchan Sumedho had already been well-schooled in the teachings of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa about Paticca Samupada. And so here he is immediately speaking in Paticca Samupada language by saying, I like it, but I don't want it. In other words, all of those beautiful girls, each one of them is beautiful, and Sumedho likes them. But he's a monk. He's got better things to do. And so he could say, but I don't want it. All right, so that's the way that we can start doing the pity. I like it, but right now I don't want it. It will be pleasant enough when it comes. I'll enjoy it when it's here. But when it's not here, if I want it, then I'm in a state of suffering. I'm in a state of dissatisfaction. So the, the way to bring the pity back in a successful way is by going back to practice being satisfied. Safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. So that's the practice. Safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. Safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. Basically, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied is the definition of the word sukha. Now, sukha is actually opposite of the word dukkha. It's exactly the opposite, which means that uh, dukkha or dissatisfaction is because either we're not secure, not comfortable. So if we are secure and comfortable, then we can be satisfied. And when we practice sukha, being satisfied over and over again, whenever we're practicing safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, that means that we're not in dukkha. This is the entire teaching of the Buddha right here, that you can come out of your dissatisfactions right here, right now, and be satisfied right here, right now, and we begin to practice that. That whatever is happening right now, it's okay. This is okay. Whatever right. it is. Go ahead, Martin. 
I say, I, I want to say that I didn't catch it. Um, I was thinking that uh, it was my, my confusions that uh, bring me the dukkha. But in fact, you're right. Uh, I was confused because I was looking how to get the pity. And so I started to look. I, I practice it, but then I look, you know, on the internet, on my book, on stuff like that. And that's when the confusions come in, in fact. But I I have the, the sati to, to wake up, but uh, I, I wasn't looking um, deeply enough. And so I didn't see that it was uh, the wanting the pity that was the, the start. I'm sorry, what? I didn't catch <laughs> uh, that last thing. Uh, I, I didn't catch that it was the uh, one thing uh, that was uh, making me in Dukkha. I was thinking it was the confusion. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, now that we understand that the the whole point of the Eightfold Noble Path is to come out of the Dukkha. And that the easy way to do that is by in this moment, wake up. If you can remember to wake up, Sati, to wake up and to see how you feel right now, how you think right now, so that you can begin to change that. You can change the way that you think, and then by uh, you can basically talk yourself into feeling good. We've been talking ourselves into feeling bad our whole lives. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good, and the way that we do that is by having positive, uh, feel-good kind of thoughts rather than I want pity or I want a girl or I want a car or I want a bicycle or I want, I want, I want, I want, right? <clears throat> Making us feel not whole, not complete, not good enough. So let's have some thoughts about, well, we are good enough. This is good enough. Things are good enough. Because in fact, they are. That a way that you could say that you, you were okay, you were living your life, and then you walked into Buddha's door, and you hear this word pity, and now you become dissatisfied. Because you want something that you don't have, or another way of saying it, you want something you don't even know what it is. That that's mm. one of the problems with Western Buddhism is wanting enlightenment. And they don't even know what enlightenment is, but they want it. And so they're in a state of deep deprivation, a state of lack, a state of dissatisfaction. Oh, I want this. I want enlightenment. They don't even know what it is. So there's, uh, there you are with greed and ignorance. And so the easy way out of that is say, oh, well, I am enlightened. If I am enlightened, then uh, I don't have to want it anymore. But deep down inside, we know that that's not true. So what we're actually practicing is something that is true. That in fact, this present moment is okay. 
Each one of you look around the room that you're in. It's not a dangerous place. It's a safe place. So why can't we feel safe just by noticing that this is a safe place right now and let me feel safe and secure and comfortable in this safe place? Yes, Lorraine, go ahead. And um, maybe we can say also that we are enlightened, but underneath our uh, crap. <laughs> it's like we are enlightened, but, but we have all kind of uh, stuff that we need to get rid of on top of our uh, natural enlightenment, I guess. Yes. Is that, uh, yeah, can we say that? Right. <laughs> yes, actually, this is a very famous statement or saying from uh, the Zendo, uh, the Zen master. Uh, will tell the student, you're already enlightened. Enjoy it. So, in other words, you've already arrived. So that kind of enlightenment means that things are good enough. This will lead then to what they call Zazen, or just sitting, to where most students practicing Zen are sitting there, I hope I get enlightened, I want to get enlightened, where's my enlightenment? Mm -hmm. And so they're not actually just sitting, they're sitting there full of desire. They are meditating. <laughs> so when hard. the Zen master comes by and says, you're already enlightened, give up on wanting that, you've already got that. And so the students would say, okay, right, I'm finally, I'm enlightened, let me just sit, let me just enjoy the moment. But another problem is uh, the word enlightenment itself the word enlightenment because of, for one thing, uh, it has nothing to do with the teaching of the Buddha, but it does have a whole lot to do with, with history, with the Catholic Church and the, uh, the foibles that the Catholic Church was having, all oh, let us say from basically about 1500, 1600s, 1700s, by then, within that time frame, the Enlightenment is over and the Industrial Revolution started. We can also call it the Renaissance or the redo or the remake. And we can say that it basically all got started with the Gutenberg press, which actually was movable type. Because you see, before the Gutenberg press, uh, there was there was only one way. The, in fact, the Chinese invented it by having what they call uh, block uh, typing to where the entire page had to be carved into wood backwards or a mirror image of it, the whole page. And so writing a book took years, but you could make by having all of these blocks. Let's say you had a 300 page book, then you have 300 blocks. All right, but the Gutenberg press was somebody got the idea. Let's cut those little blocks up into the letters and let's have a whole lot of them, like a whole bunch of T's and a whole bunch of Q's and a whole bunch of R's, et cetera, like that. And we can also have them in different sizes or fonts or different uh, styles. And so now we've got a whole room of these things that were all carved out and we can take them and within just a few minutes, we can actually do it. The guys are so fast that at the speed of reading, they can assemble these uh, blocks into the rows and then bring that page and go through the press and press it down and have that page. 
And so a book now is actually quite easy with the Gutenberg press. And that revolution dies everything because that meant that the printed literature could be widespread. And the first thing that the Gutenberg published was the whole Bible. Well, the Catholics, you see, they'd been keeping the Bible all to themselves. Basically, it wasn't the Catholics were keeping it. It was the fact that nobody had access to it without going to a library where somebody had a handwritten copy of it, possibly not even bound together the whole thing. And, and not only that, but various groups have various versions of the Bible. Some of them have the Apocrypha. Some of them got these books. The Protestants took some of the Catholic books out, that kind of stuff. But the point is, is that once the Gutenberg press was was off and running, hundreds of copies of literature, including the Bible, but there was also political stuff that was published and distributed. And this was the cause of that revolution. It caused a war that lasted 100 years. They call it the Hundred Years' War. I don't remember exactly the dates where it started and when it ends, but it was something in the 1500s going into the 1600s where Europe was totally at war. So by the time of the 1600s, the the knowledge of the New World, I mean, you had a few explorers in uh, the late times, uh, Columbus, 1492, and then... uh, Vasco da Gama and some of the early guys, but things really got rolling about 1600. 1611, 1609, 1619 was when they started bringing slaves to the West, when they started having the pilgrims come on the Mayflower. All of that kind of stuff happened that was still part of that Renaissance. That was the Age of Enlightenment. That word enlightenment has now got pinned on to what we're actually practicing now. And that um, we could say that it is somewhat descriptive. It's not a bad word to use. It just needs to be defined properly. And the way that we can define enlightenment is not way off there, way up there where the Buddha and the Jesus and, you know, Mahavir and all of that are way out there. But rather, enlightenment is something that you can do right here, right now. And what we can do is, well, let's define, let's look at the word enlightenment. The word enlightenment has the word light in the sense of turning on a light, daylight, shining a light on it, has to do with knowledge that we can see clearly. So basically, on the Eightfold Noble Path, that waking up is kind of like turning on the light. And now we can look and we can see. And then the next definition of the word enlightenment has to do with the word light, which means uh, not heavy, to lighten up. All right. So whenever a new student wakes up and looks at what's going on, He can see that this is heavy. Let me drop it right now. So you go through enlightenment within a short period of time. And we can do it over and over and over again. In fact, if we keep doing that, then we'll have that way high up there kind of enlightenment that that people think of as permanent because we're practicing at this very temporary right now level. 
that in fact, it's not necessarily true that you're enlightened right now, but it is really definitely true that you can be enlightened within three or four seconds. All we have to do is wake up and drop whatever we're carrying that's heavy, that we can wake up and see what's heavy and then drop it. We can wake up and see what's heavy and drop it. This is the Eightfold Noble Path. Three of the items on the Eightfold Noble Path to wake up, take a look, and drop it. That's enlightenment. Now, one more point, and that is, is that when we do that over and over and over again, we begin to seal that not only is this satisfactory, but I can do it. We add that element of success. We come out of the loser's position into the winner's position of I can do this. So you got both your hands up. Uh, Corey, you go first. Okay. Um, so is it, would it be correct in saying that when the Buddha becomes enlightened, he ultimately just dropped everything? And would that be a correct no. way? In, no. no. He drops one thing at a time as they occur, one mm -hmm. by one as they occur. Now, one of the qualities of wisdom is, is that we no longer put ourselves into situations. An example of that is the young man goes to the disco, he sees all of those beautiful women that are already got a guy, and he gets really jealous and wants something. But if he recognizes every time I go to the disco looking for love, I wind up feeling bad. Maybe it would be better if I don't go to the disco, that I'm okay without going to the disco, right? And so that kind of stage is, is that the wisdom will keep us out of danger. We can see things in advance, and so we don't get into that kind of danger. And so we kind of get used to being in a, uh, a copacetic homeostasis because we're able to keep the, the dangers away through wisdom as opposed to having to deal with danger that we've ignorantly walked into. This is why we have the quality of getting away from it all. What is all of that that we're getting away from? All of the stuff that would be dangerous for us in the sense of, I see it, I want it. I got to have it. I see it, I hate it. I got to kill it. You know, this kind of mentality, if we are able with wisdom to stay out of those actual situations, or if the situation occurs, I cannot let it come in and affect. So the wisdom is always that that quality of seeing in advance. So I would say uh, there's two kinds of seeing then the seeing of what's happening right now as it's occurring and then begin to make the connections all one and two lead to three. So if I can stop at one, that's better. If I can stop at two, that's good too. Or I'll have to suffer through number three. And that's where most people are. So we we wake up to the fact that we're already in the dukkha. I already want the pity. And so I can back that up just a little bit. And the backing it up is to say, well, right now I'm okay without it. 
I'm okay. And so this is the way that we practice is getting ourselves in the habit of seeing that we're comfortable. Getting in the habit of seeing that we're comfortable. So Laurent, you have a question. Oh, I I forgot to lower the hand, but uh, mm -hmm. that raised the question actually. <laughs> um, so what you do during the day, like uh, during in your life, usually we do it because we want stuff. So the kind of work we do, the people we meet or want to meet. Um, so now instead of that, because we are already satisfied. Um, for me, I feel the only reason to do something is out of generosity, right? Is there other reason to do stuff except? Yes, uh, absolutely. There are wholesome. You could almost say that there's almost as many wholesome things that we could do as there are unwholesome things that we could do. Mm -hmm. So the only reason to do something is for the the requisite or generosity, right? The only wholesome reasons. Yes, generosity actually, as we see it, becomes a duty of the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. We have a duty to be friends with people. We have a duty to um, uh, not cause other people's dukkha. But we also have the duty not to cause ourselves dukkha. Or we can say it this way, that we, uh, if we do our duty to let us call it the overlord of reality, we do live <laughs> in a real world. It's kind of an overlord. And that uh, you could say then that that overlord of reality can be defined as the Dhamma. And that if we go against our duty to the Dhamma, then there will be suffering or dukkha. Everybody experiences this. An example would be that uh, the reality of you being a, alive, a human being on this planet Earth requires that you take the next breath. That's your duty. You have a duty to take the next breath. If you don't take the next breath, believe me, you're going to get really uncomfortable. And if you continue not to breathe, you're going to croak. We have to breathe. That's our duty to the Dhamma. Well, if we can take that and accept that we have that duty to the Dhamma, then there are uh, easily other things that we can see that are duties to the Dhamma. And if we shirk our duty, then there will be repercussions. There'll be difficulties to pay. There'll be hell to pay because we're not doing our duty to the Dhamma. One of the duties then to the Dhamma that we would have is by being nurturing to ourselves rather than critical of ourselves. If we're critical of ourselves, we're not uh, being friendly with ourselves. And because we're not friendly with ourselves, we suffer being our own worst enemy or sometimes just unhappy because 
for not doing our duty. So the, you could go so far as to say is the Eightfold Noble Path is this is the duty. And if you're not doing your duty, you're going to have dukkha. And when you do your duty, then you're going to be in the third noble truth, which is no dukkha. And the method to get there is the Eightfold Noble Method. And that we can get there. If we in other words, the, the Eightfold Noble Path is the practice of doing our duty. We wake up, we take a look, and we make a change because the change that we're making is the change from not doing our duty to the Dhamma into doing our duty to the Dhamma. And then we can take that out on the road in the sense that our duty to the Dhamma is to be friendly with people. Right. Yeah. And that when we're not friendly with people, then that's it's got its own result. Yeah, of course, even yeah, even inside us, right? Yeah, it's like a, the, it's bad for them, it's bad for us. Like uh, being unfriendly, so yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to really uh, feel that uh, I want to to like to share the Dhamma uh, as my main activity, you know, in life. Like become maybe a Dhamma teacher or something. Uh, feel like it's the only thing that will be really gratifying for me, for the others, and uh, yeah. So right. Well, here's the thing. When you're talking to about the Dhamma, when you're sharing the Dhamma with your friends, we're actually doing our duty to the Dhamma. Why? Because the Dhamma in and of itself is wholesome. And so we're actually doing our duty by staying in the wholesome. Wandering into the unwholesome is dangerous. And when we can see that, then we can uh, let us say, make arrangements to avoid it. And that, that where we can start is right here with this particular thought. Is this thought wholesome? Is this thought a thought of doing my duty to the Dhamma? Or is this thought shirking my duty to the Dhamma and that I have to put up with it in the form of dissatisfaction? So, uh, back to the original question, Martin. When we want pity, we're not doing our duty to the Dhamma. But when we do our duty to the Dhamma, we recognize that, oh, the Dhamma is okay right now. It is. And if I pay homage to it, if I uh, respect it, if I uh, live according to the reality of the moment, then I'm doing my duty to the Dhamma and I don't have to suffer the repercussions that reality will bring. Like the reality of being in a state of wanting pity and I don't have it because I want it. If I stop wanting it, then it will come on its own. The example that I give is what, what about a black room or a dark room? I mean, really pitch black. No lights coming from the windows, the doors are shut, etc. When you walk into the room and shut the door, it is absolutely pitch black. 
But one of the things that we know is that there is a cat, a black cat in this room. Now, the room has normal kinds of furniture. It's a normal room in normal homes, and it's got a normal black cat. And you walk into that room and close the door, and your duty is to catch that cat. To get a hold of it. What are you going to do to get that cat? You're going to take all the furniture and inspect each piece one at a time and put it over in the corner. Because while you're inspecting this piece, the cat can go all around. You think the cat's on that side of the room, but it's already moved to that side of the room. It's completely black, pitch dark. So how can you catch the cat? Um, uh, maybe I can use a uh, um, cat food, you know, something nice to, to bring him, him to, to me. Well, maybe the cat is instinctual enough to know that you want him. And because of that, he sees. OK, uh, so maybe I just sit down and wait for him. All right. All right. Now we're cooking. Yes, that in fact, the cat will come to you if you sit down and wait. But while we're waiting, if the cat hasn't come yet, we say, where's that cat? Where's that cat? We'll start stirring around, start looking for the cat. And then the cat's not going to come. So we can think of the pity is like that. It's not going to come while you're looking for it, while you're struggling for it, while you're trying to capture it. The better thing to do is to sit down and get your mind off of the, what you want and just be satisfied. And when the, the cat of pity recognizes that uh, you're not dangerous, then like the cat, the pity will come. It comes in the form of feeling successful. And the success comes from the feeling of being satisfied. If we keep practicing satisfaction over, I mean, here's a question for you. Would you rather be satisfied or dissatisfied? Satisfied, of course. Of course, right. You would rather be satisfied. Why do we spend so much time being dissatisfied? Like wanting pity, you're dissatisfied. Like when we recognize all? that being satisfied is a much preferable position to be in then we want to practice it because we've been practicing so hard being dissatisfied with everything our whole lives. We're taught to be dissatisfied. We're not taught to be satisfied. We don't get much support for being satisfied. In other words, the, um, the teacher uh, says pop quiz time. Here's the test and she hands it out to all of the students and all the students get really busy. And one kid is just sitting there saying, well, I'm OK. I don't have to do the test. I can just sit here and be satisfied. Right now, everybody here says, oh, no, he should be taking that test. He's in school, you know. <laughs> well, um, 
the whole idea of school is, is that you're dissatisfied. And so we go from first grade to second grade all the way up to university. We get a Ph.D. And all the time that we were working on it is because we were dissatisfied. And now we got a Ph.D. We have momentary satisfaction. Maybe whenever we think about the Ph.D., we can be satisfied. But basically, we're in the habit of being dissatisfied with all kinds of stuff. Now, the, the student who is satisfied without taking the test, maybe he's satisfied because he already knows the literature, which was the important thing, not that he can pass the test. That in this regard, they call it kibitzing, and that comes from poker uh, or auditing a class. The, audit, the kids who audit a class can get more out of the class because they want to be in the class. Most of the kids that are in the class is because they want a grade. And so auditing your way through an education is the easy way out because you're only taking the courses that you want to take. And you're getting your education anyway. So. This is a way of, of, of recognizing that our whole society is set up to keep us dissatisfied. And what we can do instead is start to practice being satisfied. Yeah, I know I don't know everything, but I know enough. What what enough do I know? I know how to be happy. That's all I really need. Most of the people are working really hard, getting all kinds of knowledge so that they eventually will be happy. And yet they're not practicing being happy. They're practicing getting things. So here's the whole practice is to practice being satisfied, to practice recognizing when we're not satisfied, like I won't pity and say it'll come. I don't have to tear this dark room apart, getting that cat called pity. I can just sit here being satisfied and the cat will come to me. That by practicing being satisfied over and over and over again, we practice being satisfied, we become successful at being satisfied. And that success, that's the pity the quality of the feeling that comes with the knowledge of being successful. So you guys still got your hands up. I suppose that means because. Uh, yeah, I um, must have ended off. Sorry, Damarada. Yeah, you. Uh, it says hand raised. It's over in the lower right-hand corner, about one, two, three, four icons in, out of a group of six. And it says raise hand. I'll click it myself and mine will come on. And now I click it again and it goes. It's actually when you're, when the hand is raised, it's, it's a blue hand on my screen. Have you found it? Yeah, I clicked it and I, I thought I turned it off. Maybe you clicked it more than once. The hand <laughs> yeah, should go white. If it's blue, then the hand is raised. Okay, I've clicked it and I hasn't done anything. It, it, did, the, uh, did the hand go down? I mean, uh, turn from blue to white. Is, the, is the, uh, the hand white now? It is now on mine. Uh, now it is right now, yes. 
Yeah, okay. So it must be my computer. Does anybody else see uh, Corey's hand uh, raised? Yes, and uh, Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. It's Actually, not yeah. important. I'm yeah. satisfied whether you got your hand raised or not. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Stamarato, can I uh, ask a question in regards to what you're talking about? Um, so, as an example with pity, uh, say you have a um, an opportunity to go somewhere and you, you're wanting it and you know you can actually do it. You know you you have the opportunity to do it and you keep thinking of that. It doesn't it's not doesn't seem unwholesome to me, but how do I work my way around that? So I have an well, opportunity. No, right. The first thing is to wake up to it. Can you wake up to see it? Can you remember to look? Because that's the whole key. Once you see something, now you have choices. If we don't see something, then we don't have any choice about it. For instance, wanting pity is dukkha. Now that we can see wanting is dukkha, I have a choice about, well, can I just like it or do I have to want it? So here we have a choice and that choice is always in the moment based upon what's happening right now. That's all there is to it. Laurent, you were about to speak. No, uh, never mind. It was about the head. Never the mind. End. We'll start again. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that, uh, Martin, we've covered the, the topic about the pity and wanting pity rather than being satisfied without it and recognizing that that satisfaction is success and then the pity will come the feeling of success but the feeling of i want it and i don't have it is the feeling of not being successful and oftentimes it happens that when people don't even know what it is and they're practicing correctly and then they do get the pity but once they see how good it feels to be successful, now they want it again. And so their, their warning now is preventing them from being able to get it. But if they would practice exactly the second time, the way that they did the first time to get it, the first time they didn't even know what it was, so they're not wanting it. So the thing to do is just kind of forget all about it. You just say, this is good enough. This moment is good enough. That's all I need. This one's good enough. You don't have to know everything. Just enough. I don't have to feel wonderful. Just good enough. I don't have to have the entire uh, hotel's buffet for lunch. Just a plateful is satisfying. But yeah, the greed would say we got to have it all. Yeah, go ahead, Martin. Oh, no, I was just saying thank you. So. <laughs> you were saying what? Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Yes. So never mind. Start again. We're satisfied. This is good enough. 
Now, there's actually, to be honest with you, a stage after that. And the stage after that is the feeling of being wealthy. So we go safe, secure, comfortable into feeling satisfied, into feeling successful. But when we keep feeling successful over and over again, now we have something that we can easily give away. That that momentary feeling of success. That's our duty to the Dhamma now. Our duty to the Dhamma is to share the joy, to share our good feelings. Because in fact, that's a skill to be developed, is the skill of sharing. It's called uh, mudita, or sympathetic joy, as opposed to sympathetic arguments, or sympathetic anger, or sympathetic, uh, 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 the other word for pity, like having a pity party. Everybody love, or ev- excuse me, misery loves company. But our duty to the Dhamma is to not jump in and be miserable with them. Basically, our, our, our job would be to commiserate with them enough to get their attention and then to bring them out. It's called pacing and leading. And so we can join other people. We're wealthy enough to uh, uh, to be with them in their sorrow, but then we can be joyful and bring them out of their misery if we've got enough joy. Well, I'm wealthy with it, so why not? One of the examples that I would use, uh, uh, this was with a guy, basically the situation was is that his dad's kept watching Fox News and arguing with the television nonstop, getting himself into a great big bad feeling state on a regular basis. And his son would walk through the room or, or stop and he couldn't handle his dad. And so he would leave. Basically, he had the joy, but it wasn't enough joy to stay joyful with his dad. And that's the right thing to do is to leave when we don't have enough joy. That's our duty to the Dhamma is to get away from the grief and the suffering and all of that that other people have if we don't have enough joy to overcome it. And so we can think of it in the sense of a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. If that's the case, instead of giving a teaspoon of sugar to dad, we need to have a um, a backhoe shovel full of it to dump on him, okay, that we keep coming back with the joy, more and more joy, everything is joyful. And pretty soon dad will come out of the grumpiness if we keep giving it to them. So the joy then, uh, we're wealthy with it and we keep applying it over and over again. And pretty soon we're doing our duty to the Dhamma of bringing dad out of his misery into being okay right now. And we can do that with all of the people that we meet if we want to take that choice. Sometimes we can see that it's not worth the effort. For instance, like it would be worth the effort to do that with dad because he's in the house. 
but it's not worth the effort to go down the street to the grumpy old man there that's watching Fox all the time and angry and whatnot. It's really not a, worth the effort to go make friends with him and to teach him the Dhamma. Then, in fact, the world, seven billion people, the world is full of unhappy people. We have to choose carefully who we spread the Dhamma to, because oftentimes it's going to be wasted. And so uh, I like to talk with people who are interested and want to know the Dhamma. Because then I can share, we can be joyful together, make friends. But if I have someone who comes and says, well, I know about enlightenment better than you do, that you're just a Buddhist and Buddha died 2,500 years ago, what good is he to you now? You know, that kind of attitude. And then, well, what's the point of talking to this guy? When they argue with you, there's no reason to argue. And there is the effort that you would have to, to with the joy that you have to spend to help this one person. Maybe you could have helped uh, many more person, right? Right, right. I can spend a whole lot of time trying to help one person who is absolutely adamant about my, me, me not helping him. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to helping people who are actually eager for receiving the Dhamma. Those are the people who you want to spend time with. Makes sense. Um, but how do you uh, how do you deal when you you are uh, um, like for example living with a person uh, and you cannot just leave the house uh, for example during a conversation and uh, that sometimes uh, that that is someone that uh, has not the right view and uh, you you try to help but uh, you can't so you see and uh, but you cannot just leave the house for example how do you deal with uh, people like that um be pleasant on taking your exit <laughs> <laughs> okay. Pleasantly go someplace where life is good, rather than intentionally finding places where there's a whole lot of dukkha. This is the wisdom that I was mentioning, the wisdom to be able to see in advance that this is going nowhere. This is going nowhere. And when you can see that, you say, okay, let's go someplace else. So happily take our exit. I recommend for people who are in an argument with somebody to say, oh, well, I got to go to the bathroom. And going to the bathroom is often time enough to chill out, cool down, and maybe they are chilling out and cooling down too. That's good. Thank you. And if they're not, then there's no reason to argue. That in fact, one of the skills that I would say that we want to develop 
is by learning how to not argue with our own self, we can learn how to not argue with other people. That when we're arguing with ourselves, we're we're in confusion, we're in doubt, we're un, in uncertainty. Basically, what it is is it's a dialogue between the parent and the child, where the parent is saying, "You got to do this, you got to do that," and the child is saying, "I don't want to do that. That's too much work." Or uh, the parent is criticizing the child, saying, "You're not good enough." You should improve, you should be better. So we set a bunch of standards for ourselves that wind up being painful. And yet there are standards that we do want to set ourselves and the standard that we really want to uphold is the standard of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Well, let us have just one rule. If we can see the Dukkha, if we can see the dissatisfaction in what we're doing, now we have a choice to make a change to it so that we can come back to a state of satisfaction. All there is to it. <laughs> Practice over and over and over again. Every time we get dissatisfied, hey, I can do that. I got a choice here. Well, I see some smiles and some nodding heads and Nobody is asking any questions, so I think that you, you that we've got this. This is a, a kind of an important point. The whole point is, is that if you could see your dissatisfaction, then you have a choice to change it. And seeing that I want pity means that you're dissatisfied without it. So coming back into a state of satisfaction, like sitting down on the floor, instead of looking for the cat, we just sit down on the floor. And the cats are curious, they'll come, so long as they see it as safe. So the pity will come when you're satisfied. Or as in Zen, they say, you're already enlightened, just sit. What is the enlightenment here? It's the two-step process of looking at what you're doing and make a change, drop it. So the, the Eightfold Noble Path is, is all about that one thing. So enlightenment is not way out there in the future. Enlightenment is something that you have right now when you remember. So, so sati winds up being the most important skill in the sense that if you don't remember to look, you won't look. Or you can have a particular skill. Let us say that the guy um, is a, a world-class musician and that he has practiced this one piece of music over and over and over again, and he's ready to go. And he has an automobile accident on the way to the performance. And when he walks out on stage, he is still filled with the energy of that uh, accident that he's just had. He's probably going to not make this this performance is probably not going to be the same level of performance that he's used to giving. But if he can take a deep breath and take about 10 or 15 minutes to settle down, now he can go out on stage because he's changed the mind state that he's in. 
or in, the same thing can happen, let us say that it doesn't even have to be an automobile accident. Let us just say that, that there is somebody in the audience that gives him butterflies in the stomach, like maybe the president of the United States is in the audience, whoever that might be this year. And so he's, he's worried, he wants to make sure that he's doing a really good performance. And because of that, he's uptight, anxious, and he's not going to be relaxed enough to play well. But if he could recognize those butterflies, his fear, then he can take a few deep breaths and say, ah, I played for better people than this president. <laughs> that this is just an ordinary audience and I can handle this one just fine. And take a deep breath and now I can walk out on stage and perform well, play the play the people please well. So we can get ourselves out of the distraction. Or let us say the same situation, but um, uh, on his way out, one of uh, onto the stage, one of the musicians who was also walking out on the stage says, I wish I had pity. And then the guy about to do the performance says, I wish I had it too. And, <laughs> and now when he walks out on the stage, no possibility of pity because he wants it. He wants to feel good and he doesn't. So there you go. This is the whole point is, is that we can come to a state of being satisfied, then we can do what we need to do in the world. So this is the whole idea then, is to come to look at what we're doing, to see our dissatisfaction, and to make a change so that we come back into a state of satisfaction. This is good enough. This is fine. No worries, mate. A little dabble, do you? No place to go, nothing to do, everything is okay, not a worry in the world. Oh, everything is all right. And so this is the way that we want to keep practicing, keep coming back to the present moment, recognize, oh, what a beautiful day it is. Oh, what a beautiful moment. Before this call started, I was tired. Now I feel good. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you, Damada. Thank you very much. Laurent, where are you now? You're in uh, your room, I know, on Koh Samui. But what have right. you been up to? Well, I've been uh, meditating mostly at home and trying to transfer, you know, what I learned during the retreat. In a, uh -huh. more, in a more uh, mundane life. So it's been an interesting ex experiment, you know, and um, make me more clear about what I want to do with my time. And uh, yeah, the duty to the Dhamma, as I was saying. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, next, I think next week we are going to Papei. Uh, so it's like a monastery in north of Thailand. I'm going with Daniel. So good. Well, where is Daniel now? Is he in a retreat someplace or is he hanging out on the beach or what? He's, uh, he's back home. He went back home to see uh, his friend and family. Oh, uh, he's back in Europe. Yeah, so he's coming back on the 8th of the next month 
and uh, I have to do a visa run before, but then we are going to Chiang Mai, uh, in north of Thailand, spending a few weeks uh, with the monks. So uh -huh. that's going to be great too. <laughs> the last time that I talked to him, which was just a few days ago, um, David says yeah. that things are really happening now at Wat Khao Tum that they're actually re running retreats. So not only is Tukatai back, but so is perhaps Pramarut or whoever was running the retreats. Uh, and so I think that he's there on, on Wat Khao Tum. I'd like to hear from him too. Have you heard from, from David? Yeah, I called him yesterday. Uh, yesterday I had a video call with David and he told me uh, that Wat Kautam wasn't so good actually because uh, uh, the Tukata is there, the, the lady, but she doesn't teach and uh, she's getting kind of uh, old, you know, and not very uh, like present. And uh, the thing is, yes, she asked. I, I know, she's gotten old and forgetful and. Yeah, and. And she asked for like 5,000 baht for a few days of him staying there. So he he paid eventually and he left and he went to another Wat, which was uh, better because he could leave like the monks and go with the monks uh, in Pindabat and everything. So I don't know the name of the other monastery, but he told me it was pretty good. The only thing is uh, there was like a guy that was a bit controlling, you know, saying like you should do this and that and everything. Uh, but uh, other other than that, it was pretty good experience. And uh, now he's going, um, uh, I think that he's going to Pape actually, he's going to the same monastery we are going. So yes, then he's going to be there. And uh, I think eventually he wants to, to stay there maybe a more long term near okay. China. So maybe you will see him there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he's, uh, he's getting good information about the Watts and which one are, uh, you know, good for practice and everything. So that's I would really like to hear from him about that and maybe get some uh, some write-ups so that we can uh, uh, put that on our website. Yeah, I'm sure he can be of great help for that. Yeah. Great. Well, if you see him again or talk to him again, uh, ask him to give me a call. All right. I'll, I'll All right. <laughs> All right. Good. Okay, guys. Does anybody else have anything to say? No, that's th great. Thank you, Dan Martin. All right. Well, we'll see you guys later. All okay. right. Good to see you. Thank you so much. This has been good. Bye-bye, Debato. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye-bye.